This morning's passage is in Matthew chapter 8. It's a story about the storm being stilled. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O men of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? David, you just come here and I'll pray for you before you bring us God's word. Father God, I do thank you so much for David, for um, all the ways he has served you uh, throughout the many years he's known you, Lord, for the ways he continues to serve you now, Lord, for his, um, the words you put upon his heart this morning to bring to us about this passage. Father, I pray they will be words that will inspire and encourage, uh, that will spur us on to everything you want us to do for you. Lord, I do pray you will anoint David with your Holy Spirit as he brings this word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday, I went into my study, and I was thinking about today, and I found two CDs on my desk, and um, if you knew how untidy my study was, you could realize that there could be anything, anywhere. And I decided to play them on my computer and listen to them. They were both from Revive, but not this year's Revive. One was from Revive 2013, and the other was from Revive 2018. The first was, um, I thought it was on faith um, and mountains, but it, uh, that, that was only the, the main theme, I think, of Revive. And it, it was actually faith for the family, bringing back the prodigals. And it was by um, a Welshman called Rob Parsons. And um, as I listened to him, he made me cry. It's hard for seeing families of Christians um, coming right through. And uh, I don't know why it touched me so emotionally, perhaps because of my own family and wanting to see that. It was absolutely brilliant. And the other one was also brilliant. It was Roger Forster speaking in 2018, and he was speaking on Habakkuk 2, verses 1 to 5, on living faith. They were both brilliant. If you're about to preach, I do not recommend that you listen to brilliant CDs from others. <laughs> they make you think, what on earth am I doing here? <laughs> and perhaps after I've spoken, you'll think, what on earth was he doing there? And uh, can I suggest that you send all your complaints to Debbie and don't tell me about it, because she's, <laughs> she's the one who booked me to speak. This is a story about Jesus and his disciples on what is called the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes it's known as the Sea of Tiberias, and it has 
different names in different parts of the Bible. It's the same, and it's not really a sea, it's a freshwater lake. It's about 13, one, three miles long from north to south, and at its widest point, about eight miles wide. Something similar to um, Lake Windermere in the, um, in the Lake Districts, perhaps a little bit wider than Lake Windermere, but the same sort of length as that. It's surrounded by mountains and valleys down which winds would blow and disturb the surface. A doctor who spent many years in Galilee tells the story of a company of visitors who were standing on the shore at Tiberias and noting the glassy surface of the water and the smallness of the lake, they expressed doubts as to the possibilities of such storms as were recorded in the Gospels. Almost immediately, the wind sprang up. In 20 minutes, the sea was white with foam-crested waves. Great billows broke over the towers at the corners of the city walls, and the visitors were compelled to seek shelter from the blinding spray, though now 200 yards from the lakeside. And I read elsewhere that it, it's an area where very sudden storms can come and have an amazing effect on, on this um, lake. In Matthew's version of the story, and this is found in the other Gospels as well, he calls the sea a seismos, S-E-I-S-M-O-S, which is the Greek word for earthquake. And you will know from our, the history when the tsunami struck um, under the sea and the numbers of people it killed, particulars in Southeast Asia, places like Sri Lanka and things like that. Now, Matthew's not saying that this was a tsunami. A tsunami. He is just saying it, rep it was like an earthquake when the winds came and, and blew all this up. Um, Jesus was asleep. This is the only time we have recorded in the Gospels that Jesus was asleep. We often have him going at night, going up to pray and things like that, but this is the only time in any of the Gospels where they say, well, I mean, they probably say it in the other uh, versions of the, uh, the same story, but the only time in his life that he's recorded as being asleep. And in Mark's version of the story, we read that he had been using the boat as a pulpit before they started across the lake. So he's probably tired from preaching to the crowds all the time. Jesus was asleep in the boat. The storm comes up, and the waves were absolutely towering over them. They were in like valleys with them. Uh, <clears throat> I saw a quiz recently. What is the definition of a fjord? Think about what is the definition of a fjord. A fjord is a place where the height of the mountains next to the, the water is the same as the depth of the, um, of the sea, right? And um, or so the quiz answer said. I, I tested it out on some Norwegians who came to the Overseas Workers' Conference, and they didn't know that definition of fjord. So I don't know. But anyway, that's what it said. But... What, what it seems like is 
that was like mountains of waves, and they were right at the bottom of this. They were experienced fishermen. They'd sailed these seas fishing for years, probably since boyhood to whatever their age was now. If they were terrified, the conditions must have been extremely dangerous. In their fear, they wake Jesus up and they say, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And Jesus' reply, why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? Jesus calms the sea to the astonishment of the disciples so that they exclaim in wonderment, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey them, obey him? Now, why did Jesus not issue this command before he went to sleep? He could have said before they set off, sea and winds, be calm, so that my sleep is not disturbed. But he didn't do this. Jesus did not go to sleep to get refreshed, but to be awakened and to teach the disciples about faith. I'll say that again. Jesus didn't go to sleep to get refreshed, but to be awakened by the disciples and to teach them about faith. And if he'd said beforehand to the scene, when, don't, don't disturb me, I want to sleep, that's what would have happened. So he was using it as a teaching mechanism that the disciples had got to learn about faith. In John's Gospel, chapter 11, there's the story of Lazarus. Martha and Mary and Lazarus were a family that Jesus loved, and the two sisters sent to Jesus saying their brother Lazarus is sick. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus did not respond immediately, but delayed a further two days. Now, normal people, you get um, told that a close friend of yours in Manchester, say, you know, is seriously ill, you make every effort to get there straight away, don't you? If, they, if you really love them and you're close to them, right? Um, but Jesus doesn't do that. He waits another two days in the place. Then he tells his disciples that they should go to Judea again, which is where Lazarus and his two sisters were. The disciples respond, stating that the last time they were there, they threatened to stone him. The people in Judea was going to stone him. And there's some further dialogue where Jesus says he's going to go, and he tells them Lazarus is sleeping, right? And the disciples have got great logic. They say, if Lazarus is sleeping, he's going to wake up. <laughs> you know, you don't have to go there. And, um, and then Jesus tells them that Lazarus is dead. And in fact, when they arrive, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And Thomas is the, the great logical guy, and he says... Let's go with him and die also with him in Judea. You know? <laughs> Great statement, I think. Let's go and, and die with Jesus because they were going to stone him last time he was there. Why the delay? Jesus needs to develop the faith of the disciples and those who love Jesus. They need to develop the faith that Jesus can raise people from the dead. 
And we need to develop faith. And often the way that faith will get developed is by going through trials. For faith to grow, it needs to be tested. A man once asked an older Christian, how can I develop great faith? And the response was, if you want to develop great faith, be prepared to go through great trials. I'm going to teach you some engineering. If you're making concrete, you have basically four materials that you use. You have cement, you have sand, you have either a gravel or a crushed rock, and you have water, right? And you've got to get the mixtures right. And normally the mixture is, I say, for, for an ordinary standard concrete. When you're getting high-quality, high-strength concrete, you might go for something different. But common or garden concrete for use in structures is a one-two-four concrete. That's one shovelful of cement, two shovelfuls of sand, four shovelfuls of gravel, and then you add water and just the right amount of mortar so that it's, it's, you can do things with it, but not too much water that it becomes sloppy. And engineers have tests for the sloppiness. They use the frustum of a cone. Now, perhaps some of you don't know what the frustum of a cone is, but if you think of an ice cream cone and you cut off the bottom, what's left is the frustum of a cone, okay? And so what they do is they fill it up with concrete, right? And they turn it upside down and put it on the floor, and then they lift the, the cone off, and how much does the um, concrete slump? And that's the test of your water content. And if it's, if it's too dry, it doesn't slump enough, and if it's too wet, you can't use it. It'll, it'll slump, so it almost makes a pile on the bottom. So one of the tests that you do for concrete is the, what's called the slump test, very simple test. The other thing is you have to test its strength. And what they do, or two things. Now, I haven't been on a construction site for nearly 50 years now, so uh, maybe people who, who are up to date will say, oh, that was what they used to do. And, uh, but I'm saying what they used to do, okay? Um, you make cubes of concrete, 150 by 150 millimeters, six inches by six inches by six inches deep, right? And you, you make the concrete, and then you make several of these cubes, and the first one you test is at three days, and you put it in a machine that crushes it, and you keep on adding pressure on it until it actually crushes, right? And you, you do that at three days and at seven days. And if you plot the graph, you know, you, you've got the thing, what's the strength at three days? What's the, you can get a straight line going through zero to those two points, right? And then it goes on to 28 days on a basically a straight line, and then it turns and it goes level. So it hardly increases, maybe by one or two percent after 28 days. But all the strength is developed in those first 28 days. And if you take the three-day and the seven-day tests, you can predict it. That's when your concrete's being crushed in a compression, okay? But the other thing you need to do is if you take jaws around these cubes and try to pull them apart, how much will that do? And the odd thing is, 
that concrete is 10 times as strong in compression to it is in tension where you're trying to pull it apart. And um, so that's what engineers do. We, we don't usually pull the cubes apart. We make beams and then we put them in a thing to make them go into tension and see where they crack. And most concrete cracks in tension. Um, and if you've got a bridge that you're making of concrete, there'll be quite a lot of parts that will be in compression, but there'll be lots of parts that are in tension and they're gonna crack because it's so weak in tension. And I'm sure you know about it. What you do is you put steel bars in where the tension is into the concrete and that steel takes the tension. Um, and the wonderful thing, so amazing, is that the coefficient of expansion of steel is almost the same as the coefficient of expansion of concrete. So that the, the steel doesn't try to expand more while the concrete's not trying to expand. And that's called reinforced concrete, right? And that's what most of the stuff. There's another thing called pre-stressed concrete where they do it in a different way. But you need to be able to test your concrete. You're gonna build something that's gonna take a lot of weight that you hope is gonna last 50 years and, um, and you've got to be able to test it. You've got to know that the concrete. And I just want to tell you that the engineers use a safety factor of three on concrete. So if concrete's got to stand um, 1,000 pounds per square inch or whatever the pressure, right, then you use concrete that can actually stand 3,000 because co concrete's not a very thing. But with steel, because it's a much more homogeneous, genius material, they only use a safety factor of two. But the whole thing about engineering is you've got to test it, you know? You, you can't build your bridge without having tested whether it can stand up. And that's the same with faith. You can't have faith unless it's tested through you going through bad times till you're being crushed or extended till you feel like you can't go on any longer. I can remember when um, Anne and I had been married for about a year, we bought our first house in Farnborough in Hampshire. And you will be shocked at the price we paid for it. It was a three-bedroom, small, semi-detached house, brand new, just been built, 4,599 pounds. <laughs> you can hardly get a garden shed for that now, can't you? <laughs> anyway, um, it, the new house came with nothing in the garden. It was just straight in the garden, there were no paths or anything. And I decided to build, because we were wondering when we think, where are we gonna keep the pram in summer and, and this sort of thing. And so I decided to make a, a, a patio out of concrete. And I did all my engineering calculations and um, I, I got the right, I was going to do a one, two, four mix. I got the cement and the sand and the aggregate and I bought those things. And I had a concrete mixer, it's one of these little things that they deliver and you just load it in and you add the water and do it. And while I was doing it, I, I got it all worked out. So I'd, got, I'd worked out how much concrete had to be, what thing, I'd done a great engineering job on it. And I was about to start, a neighbor came up and he says, David, you, I'll come and mix up all your concrete for you. You just take it in the wheelbarrow and spread it. And it, where the mixer could be was probably about 50 to 60 yards from where I had to think. And I said, oh, thank you very much. And so I got this and I did the whole slab. And then at the end he said, David, I decided to save you. I saved you two bags of cement, you can take them back. 
And I thought, all my calculations. I'd, I'd love to go back now, 60 years on, and see whether that slab stood up. But it lasted for the two and a half years that we lived in that house. Um, God often answers straight away when we cry out to him. What about when God does not seem to hear when you've prayed about saying, prayed about somebody's healing? When you've prayed about perhaps relationship difficulties in a marriage? When you've prayed about disappointment? When you've prayed about family agreements or disagreements? When you've got dashed hopes, you were hoping so much for something, you prayed out to God for it. And... Um, Nothing seems to happen. I can remember we had um, um, a lady called Phil who joined our house group. She'd basically come from nominal, I would have said, Roman Catholic background when she joined our house group. And, um, and in, in the course of time, she became a Christian and, um, and she wanted to be baptized and she was baptized at Revive. And she said, I'm only going to get baptized if Anne will take me into the water to do it. Now, Anne, my wife, was actually quite fearful of going into the water at Revive. And, um, and Anne said to me, I'll only do it if you come in with me and hold me. <laughs> so, and normally they have somebody else doing all the baptism. So, poor Phil, uh, Anne and I went in with her and, and she was baptized at Revive. And then, a bit later, she became quite seriously ill. And we, in our house group, were all praying for her healing. Val would have been there. She was in the house group at that time. But all the others, we were really praying, Lord, we want her to get healed. And then I remember, just as I was sitting there amongst the house group, a poem came to my mind by Tennyson called Across the Bar. I don't know if you know that poem. It's about um, Tennyson is, in actual fact, looking towards his death. And he says, then I shall meet my pilot, and his pilot is God, when I have crossed the bar. You know, there's a sandbar that you have to go out into the deep ocean. And he was thinking of the deep ocean of heaven. And then I, and this came to me, and I thought, I don't know where it's from. So I went and got my book and, and looked it up. I didn't have Google in those days. And... Um, and it was this Tennyson poem. And I said, I don't think she's going to be healed. Um, I think she's actually going to die because I think that this is what... It was quite a hard message to give. Shortly after that, um, Anne and I had to go... We didn't have to go. We went out to Afghanistan and Phil was in hospital. And we got an email from her daughter um, to say that she was you know, not long now, as far as the, the, the doctors were saying. And um, so we, Anne and I decided to write a long email to her so that it could be read to her before she died about how great she'd been and how, um, what a, a way she had really finished off her life and how she had followed Jesus and, and things like that. And so um, I, I sat down at the computer in Afghanistan and Anne and I talked, and then I typed a, a long letter that we were going to email to her daughter. Uh, and, um, and just then, 
just, I, I'd done it all. The power went off. Now, in a place like Afghanistan, when the power goes off, it doesn't come on 10 minutes later. It could be three days later, you know. Um, more often, probably a day later. And uh, I was furious. And um, we were staying in a house um, with uh, two girls. One was called uh, Stacy, and the other was called Paula. And while we were typing this, they were cooking the evening meal. And, uh, and I looked at my computer, and I said, Power, come on! And it came on. <laughs> this was about four minutes after it had gone off. And I just went bang, and off went the, the email. Now, the interesting thing is that these two girls came, and one girl said to the other, Dave, it's not lonely like this. And Paula, who was one of the two who was cooking the meal, thought I was complaining that they weren't cooking the meal fast enough. <laughs> and, and they heard it as, Paula, come on! <laughs> anyway, the email got there, and the daughter was able to read it, and I think she died the next day. Um, but sometimes you have to face that God's not going to answer the prayers in the way that you want them. But faith is being tested and carrying on. John Newton um, was a ship's captain who was a master of the ships involved in the slave trade, taking slaves from Africa to, the, to America and that. Um, and he was very anti-Christian. And a young man came to join his ship who was a Christian. And John Newton persuaded this young man that... Christianity was all rubbish. You know, you shouldn't um, follow Jesus. It's totally wrong. And he managed to, what you might call, deconvert the man. And so this man left all his traces of faith. And then John Newton was converted himself. And um, he was eventually made, uh, he eventually went into the Anglican ministry, and he was made the curate of Olney Parish Church. Um, they would have had a, a vicar who controlled several churches, and curates were people who each controlled individual ones under the overall vicar. And he was made the curate of Olney Parish Church in Buckinghamshire. And uh, a friend of his came called William Cooper, who was one of the great lyric poets in the English language, came to live in Olney to be near him. And every Thursday, I think it was, they used to have a prayer meeting and the two of them would take it in turns um, to write a new hymn for the prayer meeting. Uh, so they'd have a new hymn each week at the prayer meeting. And Cooper, while he was there, wrote 78 hymns. And Anne and I, when we were young, we drove to Olney just to be in the area and see where these two great men of God um, had been. All his life, John Newton tried to go back and persuade that young man but he never could break him back into following the Lord. And um, John Newton went on, he got a, he was eventually moved to a church in London, was a, a great uh, counsellor to William Wilberforce, who was doing the parliamentary work of um, getting the, the slave, the, the whole, no slave should be in the whole of the, the British colonies or the British Empire or whatever it is, uh, which took some time. 
Now, there's another thing. John Newton had proposed three times to his wife before she accepted him. She wanted to accept him the first time, but convention was that you never said yes the first time. You had to propose a second time, and she said no a second time, and the third time it was, okay, convention was satisfied, and I'm glad Anne didn't do that to me. But you'll find that if you read um, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, do you, know, do you know that book, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice? When Canon Collins decides to propose to Elizabeth Bennet in it, she turns him down, and he says, oh, it's just one of these, you know, <laughs> I've got to come and propose a second time to you. And she said, no, you haven't. <laughs> so anyway, it's an incredible scene in that book, um, the, the proposal of Canon, or was he, Vicar um, Collins to uh, Elizabeth Bennet. John Newton wrote a poem about the spiritual life and he cried out for a deeper knowledge of God. He expected some wonderful vision of the Lord, rending the heavens to shower blessing into his life. But instead of this, Newton had an experience in which for months God seemed to abandon him to Satan. He was tempted and tried beyond his comprehension. Yet at last, he came to understand and saw that this was God's way of answering his prayer. God had allowed him to go down into the depths to teach him to depend entirely on him. And then when Newton had learned the lesson, he brought him out of his trial. Gosh, have I got a few minutes more? Yep. Hebrews chapter 11 is one of the great chapters about faith. And if you read it as it goes through, by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, then by faith Abraham again, by faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, by faith Joseph. By faith, Moses. By faith, um, Moses forsook Egypt. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho came down. And then he talks about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. In general, as you read the stories, they were all successes of faith. But then the chapter goes on. Others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. Can you imagine that, being sawn in two? Were tempted, were slain by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destituted, afflicted and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us. Not really, the, do you see what I mean? You know, all these others achieved great things. They, they got sawn in two, they got in prison, they got chains. And faith can be like that. 
And you can't look at somebody else and say, they're doing great, Lord. Uh, uh, why, why me? And faith and worry are the opposites. I'm just going to conclude with something I want to tell you about my family to help you understand what I'm going to say next. My father, when he was a boy in India, had rheumatic fever, which affected his heart with what was called mitral stenosis. It's something to do with the um, valves not working properly in the heart. I think nowadays it could probably be operated on, but not then in India. He met my mother and they fell in love and they became engaged. Before they were married, the doctor told my mother that the prognosis for my father's life was not good. He said he may live for only one year or at best a few years. In fact, they lived for eight years because my mother said, no, on any terms, I'm accepting and I'm going to get married. They, they lived for eight years after marriage and they had two children, my brother Peter um, and me. When my father died, my brother was between six and seven and I was between three and four years old. My mother was bereft by his death and never married again. I hardly knew my father, A, because I was very young and he was often ill and confined to bed in the, in the last year or so of his um, life. I knew that he'd been uh, appointed the head of mathematics at a prestigious boarding school for the military in India. So I had a military education because I went to that school and I was told how to salute and march around and things. Um, in reality, I never knew my father. And I often thought, what would his advice have been to me? As you go through the teenage years, it would have been great to have had a, a father who could advise you, say, what I think you're doing is right or what I'm doing is not right, things like that. By and large, if you're at a boarding school, you have to make all the decisions yourself. And that was true for me. Changing the subject slightly. There was an American couple, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Cowman, who served as missionaries in China and Japan from 1901 to 1917. But after this time, Charles Cowman, the husband, became very ill and they had to return to America where his wife nursed him for six years until he died in 1923. During this time, she would write meditations based on scriptures for her friends. They so appreciated this and she was asked to make these into a book, which she did and called it Streams in the Desert, a spiritual, a scriptural, meditation for each day of the year. It was published in 1925, but in 1997 it was modernized. I think only phrases that no longer meant the same thing were changed to modern English. And, um, <clears throat> and I bought a copy of it and um, it cost three pounds 49. I think I bought it in 1998 or 99. And, it's a very good book. It's just each day it, it takes a verse. And what it's aiming to do is that if you're going through the desert and things are very tough, 
It aims, I mean, what do you need most if you're in a desert? You need water, don't you? More than you need food, you need water. And this, this book of streams in the desert is to help you, to give you streams of living water from the Lord. It, it's, a, it's a very good book. Yes, two days ago, I was in my, um, uh, my lounge, and I was just looking at my books, and I saw an old book. This is it. It was stuck in the corner, and I could hardly read the title. And it was the 1925 edition of Streams in the Desert. And I opened it, and it said, to my own darling Oz, Oswald was the name of my father, wishing you a very happy birthday and many returns of the day with heaps of love, Emily. Emily was his younger sister. And I thought, God, <laughs> sorry. I had a new knowledge of my father after 82 years of not knowing. I'm sorry. It was um, such an encouragement to me. What the disciples had seen of Jesus mobilized them. We know what Peter and John did. Um, we know that Peter raised the dead. Um, there's a, um, it, it, I mean, the rest of it is, I don't say it's myth, it's stories that are unverified that Thomas went to India. And there's a place in India called St. Thomas Mount to this day. We are called to pray and pray and pray. God has something for us. And sometimes we have to keep on praying before he releases the answer. Whatever Jesus prayed for happened. Whenever he laid hands or whatever he prayed, they think, that's not the experience of most Christians, even those who really believe in prayer for healing and this sort of thing. We, I once spoke to a Christian leader who was very into praying for people. And he said his average was that one in every four people were healed when he prayed for them. You might, you might think, you know, that's not, a, I think it's quite a, that's never to stop us praying for it, but we don't always break through. And sometimes we have to keep on going and keep on going in faith. And I think that's what this, Jesus is really trying to teach his disciples. That's why he went to sleep in the boat. That's he wanted the disciples to grab hold of faith and keep on enduring whatever the conditions that happened to them. Amen. Thank you, Walter. Thank you.